2 Timothy chapter 4 for some of Paul's final words. And they are personal words about his life. We have read Ecclesiastes 12 earlier in this assembly. We have read Psalm 15 earlier. We could have added to it Psalm 24, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, and other passages of Scripture that list for us the traits of a good Christian and the description of a well-lived life. I want to speak to you in these minutes that we have about a life well-lived, because all of you ought to be living your lives with eternity in view, with standing before the Lord in view, and with God's Word in view as to it telling us how we ought to live. At the end of life, it's too late to go back and rebuild your life. You need to build your life now. And that's why Ecclesiastes 12 began, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, before the evil days come. While you're young and healthy, while you've got time and less complicated lives, use that zeal and use that energy for building your life so that at the end of your days you have a life that meets with God's approval and the approval of good men. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 6, and I'll read three verses. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Amen and amen. Amen. This is Paul's life. He couldn't go back and undo the part of his life before he was converted, but from the day of his conversion forward, he had fought a good fight, He had finished his course and he had kept the faith. Paul didn't say a thing in here about making a decision for Jesus because Paul wasn't looking for a decision for Jesus as have any ground for his hope of eternal life. Paul's confidence and his persuasion that God was able to keep that which he had committed unto him against that day was based on having fought a good fight because every Christian is in a war every day, and Paul fought it well. Paul finished his course. And I want to remind each of you that you have a course to finish, and how well are you finishing it? And Paul kept the faith. He just didn't profess the faith. He kept it by keeping all of God's commandments that make up the faith of God's elect, as it's described in Titus chapter 1. We're studying Romans 12. We can't undo the terrible things the first Adam did for us. We can't add to the wonderful things the second Adam has done for us. But in between, we can live a life pleasing to our Creator, our Father, and our Savior who gave Himself for us. It's our blessing. It's a privilege for us to know what God defines as a successful life. Not what the world says. The world has their idea of a successful life, but God has addressed the world 
low and high, rich and poor, in Psalm 49. In Psalm 49, he says, they are tossed in the grave like sheep, and death feeds on them, and worms eat them. Because they are so foolish, they watch their peers die, they watch their ancestors die, and yet it doesn't affect their lives at all. Yet they measure themselves by earthly accomplishments. They name their lands after themselves, but they're tossed into the grave and death feeds on them. But David said, the Lord will receive me out of the grave. A totally different perspective. We don't want to measure our lives the way the world does. Jeremiah chapter 9 condemns the three primary ways in which the world measures a life. The mighty man glories in his strength. So we have a generation addicted to sports. The wise man glories in his wisdom, so we have a generation obsessed with academic accomplishments. The rich man glories in his wealth, and so we have a generation that exalts the Bill Gates and Donald Trumps and others who have a few bucks, but they won't take a penny with them when they leave this world. The world exalts a few little infantile learning accomplishments of school, a few little athletic accomplishments of sports, and then a few little financial or economic accomplishments of a profession executed well. And yet the Lord says those things are not worth glorying in. You should glory in the fact that you know me and understand me and that I love righteousness, loving kindness, and judgment. That's what Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 teaches. The world says, he who dies with the most toys wins. The Bible says, die, fools. Luke chapter 12. The rich fool said to himself, I need to build bigger barns for my toys. Because he who dies with the most toys wins. So I'm going to pull down my present barns and I'm going to build greater barns in order to hold all that I've accomplished. And then I'm going to sit back and retire and dwell at ease. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. The Lord said, you fool. Tonight your soul will be required of thee. Then whose will these things belong to? Who's, who gets the toys when you die? One of the fools that you begat, according to Ecclesiastes. This is the word of the Lord against the world. What is the epitaph of a great life? What's the simplest way that we can put an epitaph for a great life? He loved the Lord more than all others. And he was a tree of life to all others. That's the first two commandments. That's a simple way that I like to think about it for each of us. He loved the Lord more than all others. And he was a tree of life to all others. Showing first of all the first commandment of love toward God. And second of service toward brothers. In Micah chapter 6 the Lord said what does the Lord require of thee? He asked the question for us. Does he want the firstborn of your Family, does he want 10,000 rivers of oil? No. He wants you to walk humbly, to do justly, and to love mercy. That is what our God says is a successful life. He's the creator. He made us. He designed and ordained life. When he tells us what a good and successful life is, we should remember those things, and we should emphasize those things in our lives. Let us not let the world brainwash us to think the way they do. Let's brainwash ourselves by reading the Word of God and submitting to it. It describes a successful life for us. 
Now, Paul said, I have finished my course. Paul's course is not your course. Your course isn't even close to Paul's course. And no one else had a course like Paul had. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, where Paul said, Be ye followers of me, as I am a follower of Jesus Christ, it didn't have anything to do with his course as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It had everything to do with keeping God's commandments that Paul laid out in his general epistles and his pastoral epistles. Paul's course was to be the singular apostle to the Gentiles. There was no other apostle quite like him. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. God revealed things to him that he hadn't revealed to anyone else. Paul wrote most of the New Testament and almost all the New Testament for us Gentile believers. That was his course. No other apostle was ordained to be the apostle of the Gentiles like Paul was. No one after Paul was ever ordained to be an apostle. So you can't even come close to Paul's course. There hasn't been an apostle since the apostle Paul. He said he was, he said the Lord Jesus Christ was seen last of all of me as of one born out of due time. He's the last of the apostles. Any church that says they have an apostle since the apostle Paul is lying. It's one of the easy ways to know that you're dealing with a lying cult or a lying denominational religion. Because Paul was the last. You can't keep his course. God providentially prepared Paul before and after his conversion to be a unique servant of Jesus Christ. If you're married, you've already blown it. Paul wouldn't waste his time in a marriage. Paul didn't have time for a wife. Paul didn't have time for a family. Are you kidding? He had things to do for the kingdom of heaven. Paul himself would say in 1 Corinthians 7 that a married man cares for the the things of this world, how he may please his wife, and a married woman cares for the things of this world, how she may please her husband. If you're married, you've already missed his course. But nowhere in the Bible does God hold you accountable for Paul's course. Paul made himself a unit for the kingdom of heaven's sake, and Jesus said, only some can receive such a saying. And Paul said, though he would wish that there were others like him, he knew that every man had his gift of God, some like himself and some different from him. One of the worst things you can do about your life is to measure it by a standard that God did not choose for you. Don't you measure your life by a standard that God didn't choose for you. It is not the amount of the return in your life. It's the yield. If God made you a two-talent Christian, I'm referring to Matthew chapter 25, and for the sake of time, I'm referring to it. If God made you a two-talent Christian, that means He gave you two talents. Or as Luke would say, He gave you two pounds, two English pounds. What did you do with that investment that God gave you in the abilities and opportunities that He gave you in your life? If you got a yield of two, and He gave you two, you receive the same words and the same praise from Him as if He gave you five and you return five. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is a life well lived. That is a life that receives God's approval. The two-talent Christian is not held accountable to return five like the five-talent Christian. The two-talent Christian is just responsible to return two, and the one-talent Christian only needed to return one, but he didn't get a return at all. And so the Lord took from him his one talent and gave it to the man with five. Because the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in the kingdom of heaven. 
Because if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. Because if you don't use what God's given you for His glory and honor, He will take from you opportunity and ability. We are to build our lives by God's standard for each of us, not by a standard for someone else. There is so much emphasis put in some circles, and they were circles that I grew up in, on full-time Christian service. Full-time Christian service. Constantly beat upon the saints of God, so that if you weren't in some so-called full-time Christian service, then you were a second-rate Christian and really didn't amount to anything in the sight of God. You were just second-rate. You didn't really love the Lord if you weren't in full-time Christian service. Well, there's only one full-time Christian service office left in the New Testament, and that's the office of bishop, and God chooses the men that go in that office. He doesn't hold everyone accountable to be in that office. And to put yourself under that burden like so many of them want to do sets up a standard for you to make you think that you have failed God. But you haven't failed God if you're being faithful in all the things that He has given you to do. The Bible tells me that if you work hard on the job and are faithful and do it as unto the Lord, you are serving the Lord Christ. Colossians chapter 3, the last four verses. You're serving the Lord Christ if you do your job well, if you do it as unto Him, if you do it heartily as unto the Lord, if you don't do it for the eye service of pleasing men, but for pleasing the Lord, God sees that and that is a life well lived. That is a brick that goes into your life that pleases God and men are able to see as the evidence of eternal life in you. This error comes from Roman Catholicism. It starts with Roman Catholicism. And others have jumped on their bandwagon. The Roman Catholic Church has wanted to seduce young men to enter the priesthood from the beginning. And they want to seduce young women to go to the convent from the beginning. And so people have invented offices. There's no office of missionary in the New Testament. Find it for me. I've looked at the word M in my Strong's Concordance and I haven't found it. I have found apostle. I have found prophet. I have found evangelist. And I have found pastor and teacher. I know the apostles are gone, I know the prophets are gone, and I know the evangelists are gone. The modern idea of an evangelist who floats from church to church like a traveling salesman and has his five canned sermons is no New Testament ministry whatsoever. That isn't evangelism at all. Evangelism is preaching the gospel to people who have never heard it before. Not traveling to people who have only heard it and taking from them and then going to the next congregation. You're taking things made ready to your hand, which Paul strictly condemned in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in verses 10 through 15 as something he would never do. But he was going to go beyond Corinth and preach it in regions where someone had not prepared a congregation for him to fleece. It's easy to entertain a new congregation. Any man should be able to do it. To go into a church where nobody knows him or his past, no one knows how he's living, and he gets to entertain them with 45-minute sermonettes five nights during the week. And then he gets to blow out of town and not deal with any of the problems that a pastor has to deal with every day of his life. That isn't isn't an office. That isn't full-time Christian service. That's retiring on the job. That's ridiculous. I grew up in that system of religion. It's not found in the New Testament. There's no, there's no traveling salesman in the New Testament. So when you hear that full-time Christian service, listen, it's a full-time job to be a good Christian wife. It's a full-time job to be a good Christian mother. 
It's a full-time job to be a good Christian daughter. It's a full-time job to be a good Christian church member. Those are the things that God's called us to do. And when you start reading Romans and then First and Second Corinthians and you work your way through the New Testament, that's where you find all of the apostles' emphasis. Right. Nowhere in any of the general epistles does Paul start to work over the membership of a church in order for them to be in so-called full-time Christian service. He never mentions it. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is a pastoral epistle, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. But that's in a pastoral epistle. And then he gives the qualifications. The reason I wanted to spend a few minutes on that point is because you shouldn't make that the standard for your life or you're going to end up failing. God hasn't called you to that. If God's called you to that, then you use it. How will I know that God's called me to the ministry? Some minister is going to know that God's called you to the ministry. He's going to help you know that call from God. That's why it was written to a pastor, not to a church. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be. Timothy, here are the rest of the qualifications that must be in place. But let's, let's think about a life well lived that God has defined in the Bible. The first thing that we want to think about is walking with God. For a, for a life to be successful, the first part of that epitaph was he loved, he loved the Lord or he loved God more than all others. It's a man that walks with God. A man that walks with God, it's going to be visible because he's going to have a changed life. He's going to love the Lord. He's going to speak about the Lord. He's going to love to be in the Lord's worship. He's going to love to sing praise to the Lord because he walks with the Lord. This is the first commandment. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. If we reduce ourselves to the Bible, then this is what we're going to come up with as the main character traits of a life well lived. This is a successful life. This is what we want to aspire to. This is what we want to face death with. That we have built a life from carefully chosen bricks that the Bible describes and the Bible defines so that our lives meet with His approval. God made you for Himself. You want to fulfill that purpose for your existence. This is the highest measure of a man. Enoch went straight to heaven, not because he converted others, but because he walked with God. Our first our first goal with our existence is not other words. It's Godward. We want to walk with God. We want to delight in Him, as David would say in Psalm 37.4. While the effect of this kind of conduct is visible... Because it will lead to a changed life. The full extent of that relationship is between a man and God. As to how closely he walks with the Lord. We'll be able to see the effect of some of it, but not all of it. The first brick is loving the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is something you can do in bed. It is something you can do while you're driving, while you're sitting in church, while you're walking by the way. You can love the Lord your God. You can tell Him you love Him. You can praise Him for all that He's done for you. You can thank Him. You can bless Him. You can learn about Him from His Word. You can delight in everything that you learn. That He is, and that He has done, and that He will do. It's walking with God. This sermon has to be very brief on character traits of the righteous. So don't expect me to deal at anything with length. You know that there are sermons... For each of the points that I'm going to give you, I want the general point communicated. A life well lived that meets with God's approval 
and the approval of men. The second thing, the second brick that we ought to have in our lives is that we serve others. Because the second commandment is like to the first commandment, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We should be other-oriented. We should want to do things with and for others. This is the word of the Lord to us. Under this simple heading, we include the golden rule. We do to others as we would have them do to us. We include graciousness. We include generosity. We include compassion. This is having an interest in care and being a tree of life to others. There's two general classes of Christians, givers and takers. The givers are the winners. They have a life that God's going to approve of and that others approve of. And the takers are losers. They suck churches dry because they expect everyone to be serving them. The difference is enormous in the life that you're building. The bricks that you take, that you put in your foundation, should be others, not yourself. You are the least and last of all the church members, always. You should be looking toward others. And it's that brick called others that you put in place. It's the love of God. It's the love of others. Then yourself. But the Lord knows that we love ourselves too much, so He tells us, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Because He knows that's such a high standard of love, because we're all so self-protective of ourselves. But a person that has a life that is Noted by the Lord of heaven is one that gave himself for others. Look at the Apostle Paul. I have finished my course. What was his course? How much pleasure did he get out of life? Did he have 48 rounds of golf in his first year and a half in the ministry? How many rounds of golf did he have? Did he have a few rounds of beatings? Did he have a few rounds of stonings? How about some being shipwrecked? How about being cold, hungry, fasting, prayers, and the burden of all those churches that had heresy so fast it was ridiculous? That's Paul. He said, if you want to follow his course a little bit, then you've got to be oriented toward others. We want to love God first and love others second. This is a, these are two bricks that go into a life well lived. Look at 1 Timothy with me. 1 Timothy, where we get a, a string of bricks given to us, by this apostle who wrote to Timothy telling him how he ought to conduct himself in the church of God and he gave him a list of prerequisites or qualifications for a widow to receive the very special and lofty position of a widow indeed in a New Testament church where she gave herself to the things of the Lord the church would support her fully. It's contained in the first 16 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we don't have time for all 16 verses. I've preached on this before. I just want to mention some of the things that are listed here because this is a life well lived because Paul takes notice of these exceptional widows and lists their qualifications and lets us know these are very special women. I want to speak about men and I want to speak about women. Here are women mentioned. 1 Timothy chapter 5 has most of the list. It is describing a woman who is desolate. Verse 5. Now she that is a widow indeed, this is a real widow that God says the church should support. Here's what she does with her time. She's like Anna in Luke chapter 2. She that is a widow indeed and desolate 
It means she doesn't have a family to help her. Trusteth in God. Notice where her faith is. And continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. There's two different kinds of widows in the church of Jesus Christ. Some are belly worshippers because they're more interested in the things of this life than in serving the Lord. This is a desolate woman. I do not have time to chase every question that your mind is going to raise about widows, but I do have time to do this. We are going to go through the list because it's going to trigger the course that God has given to each of us. In this case, it's women, but it applies to men as well when I mention marriage. It applies to men as well when I mention child training, because these things are in the list of what makes a great woman. Verse number 9, let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. The first thing we notice about this woman is that she was a dedicated spouse to one man. Do not worry about the other questions that come up. I've answered them before. The issue is a good woman is a great, dedicated, loyal, faithful wife. And you should know that because it's taught elsewhere in the Bible. Verse 10, well reported of for good works. Not only does she have good works, but she has good works that are so extensive, so consistent, she has a great reputation for being a woman of good works. Another brick in verse 10, if she have brought up children. That isn't giving birth to children. That is training children. The terminology there is taken from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Any junkyard dog can give birth to children. Giving birth is absolutely nothing. Billions and billions and billions of women have done it before you, and quadrillions of animals have done it before you. And will you all give birth the same way? The Bible says that we're all born like an ass's colt. We all come out the same way, and it isn't pretty. I've seen all the films. I've been at all seven of my wives, my wife's birth, not my wives, my wife's births. It's not the prettiest thing in the world, and it's not supposed to be. God said, I'm going to greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception because of Eve's role in the fall. But the point we want here is she's a good mother as defined by God. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, she's given to hospitality. She opens up her home and takes care of those that she may not even know, but they're members of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If she have washed the saints' feet, this is no religious rite. By its inclusion in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it proves that it was never a church ordinance. Otherwise, it couldn't be a limiting qualification for exceptional women. This was a social custom of the day done by the most serious, loving, humble servant types. Like an Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 who did it for David's servants, and who offered to do it for David's servants. She wouldn't even confess herself to be good enough to wash David's feet. She said, I'll wash the feet of your servants. This is what Jesus referred to in Luke chapter 7, when he said, Simon, when I entered your house, why didn't I get a kiss? Why didn't I get any water for my feet? This woman 
has not ceased to kiss me and wash my feet with the tears of her eyes since I arrived. This is the humility of a person willing to get down and serve other people in a humble way where there's no recognition or glory in what they do, but they just want to take care of others. If she have relieved the afflicted, they are interested in taking care of the poor. They visit the fatherless and the widows, those who have acts of God in their lives. If she have diligently followed every good work. Now that is quite a brick. When you diligently follow every good work. The good works are those defined in the Bible. But this woman diligently does them. This is a great list. And it triggers us to think about the course that God has given us. Listen, God created marriage and God gave another person to you as your spouse. A woman has very specific duties assigned to her by her creator as to how she's to treat her husband. It has nothing to do with her preferences. It has nothing to do with the fact that she was born to a wicked woman who never showed her how to be a Christian wife. It has nothing to do with what she's read in Cosmopolitan. It has everything to do with what does the Bible say I should do toward my husband to be a good wife. That man will walk around with a glow on his face and a smile on his mouth and cheerful words of praise in his throat when a wife treats him that way. So it's a reputation that spreads. She's a great wife. We know them. She's not a great wife. We know them. But we're talking about a life well lived. And this brick called marriage applies to both. The Bible tells husbands how to treat their wives. And if a husband treats his wife the right way, his wife's going to walk around with a glow on her face. And she's going to have a smile. And she's going to have some pretty wonderful things to say about her husband. That's because we've built our lives with a brick called marriage by fulfilling what God says to do in our marriages. Are you with me? A life well lived. Paul said, I finished my course. What is your course? I'm giving it to you. Walk with God, love and serve others, and be a great spouse. A great spouse. You are going to give an account for what you have done in ruining the life of the person that you're married to when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm not a bad wife. If you're not everything the Bible says, you're going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm a decent husband. I bring home the bacon. So does a junkyard dog. I protect my family. So does the junkyard dog. You haven't done anything yet. You say, I I got them all through high school. So does a junkyard dog. Don't you know that junkyard dogs train their young? So does an opossum. I'm proud of you. You've made great accomplishments. So does a possum. You know, little mommy possum will carry those little possums around first in her little tummy in its little pouch. And then on her back, they'll just cling on for dear life while mommy takes them to school. Then they graduate when they fall off and can walk. That's an opossum's education. Listen, brethren, and I, I know sometimes I, I'm as serious as serious can be. What is a life well lived? I don't want any of you measuring it the wrong way. And I want you measuring it the right way. And one of the bricks is a marriage. And this woman in 1 Timothy 5, it just uses so few words, but what's it telling us? She was a great wife. She didn't divorce and remarry five different men in her lifetime. Bye-bye. 
No church help for you. She was dedicated wife. She had a great reputation. Does the Bible say a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, much gold, much silver? She had that reputation. You say, well, I don't have a reputation because nobody likes me. That is your reputation. It says a great deal about you. You're unlikable. The Bible says a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. A friendly person has friends. A gracious person has friends. That is your reputation. Change your reputation. You say, well, I've tried. Try harder. Reach a little higher for that brick. Put that brick of a reputation. This woman had quite a reputation. Well reported of for good works. That was that doesn't mean it was just barely mentioned about her that once in a while she had a decent thing that she did in her life, but she was well reported of for good works. This is a life well lived. As we think about our congregation, as we think about our older members, we want to think about which ones have built their lives well by carefully chosen bricks in their lives. And the point is for you young people to be picking the bricks right now to do a great job. We all know how well you obey your parents. We all well, we know how much you love the house of God. We can tell by your faces. We can tell by your body language. And we can tell by the glow on your parents' faces. When there isn't a glow there, we know that it's a pain being your parent. All of these things are bricks that make up our lives. Parenting well. She, she, if she have brought up children. A life lived well includes being a good parent as God defines it. Regardless of the world's measures. Bringing home the bacon and all those other statements that are made are frivolous junk. They don't amount to anything. Animals do those things. There's something way beyond that. And it's teaching them about the God of heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the truth of God's Word. Do your children know that? Did you communicate that to them? This is bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It is religious training conveying to them the fear of God, faith in God, love of Jesus Christ, and belief in the knowledge and truth of the Bible. This is what a great parent is. Think about some of the great parents that are mentioned in the Bible. Hannah. What do we know about her son? Samuel, he was one of the greatest prophets in the history of his... Did he make it to the, the short list of God's five great ones? Did he make it there? Did she have, do you think she had any role in that? How about Timothy? Was Timothy unlike every other man that Paul knew? According to the Word of God, he was. What made Timothy what he was? His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. The faith that was in them was communicated to their son and grandson, Timothy. Solomon, what made him great in the great part of his life? He said, I was tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. She taught me. He taught me. Speaking of his father, David. You can look at your children and you can measure your life. It tells you what kind of a brick you have placed in your life by all those countless and hours where the rest of us didn't get to see you. What did you do with your children? Did you fight in front of them? Did you sin in front of them? Did you teach them the Word of God? Did you show them how to live the Word of God? That is your brick. Who wants to go back 
and get married and start all over again. You know, we can't. But the Lord forgives. And He can restore the years of the canker worm. And He wants us right now to be picking the best bricks that we can. And all you young men, all you want to do is get older. When I get older, then I can do things my way. <laughs> yes. right. Your life is going to be so much more restricted than it is now. But they don't know that, do they? Young men, you can be listening to me right now and say, I want to build my life so that my life is to the glory of God and the praise of men. I wanted to show forth the Word of God as a living epistle by build, take, choosing bricks about every part of my life that match up with the Word of God. Proverbs 17.6, look at it as it describes the relationship between parents and children. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 6. It's a verse quoted often. We just want to think about it in the two directions. Parenting and parenting well. Being a good parent is one of the bricks of a life well lived. Adam ruined our lives. Jesus has saved us for eternal life. In between, what are we going to do with our lives? We want to live them well, to the praise and glory of God, and to a reputation that enhances His gospel. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6, Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. Now, Proverbs are dark sayings. They are short, and the Lord expects us to put a sense on the words. Let me remind you of a place where I put a sense on another verse. When the Bible says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, is that to be taken in those words, or, or does Solomon expect us to put a sense on those words? He expects us to put a sense. Not everyone who gets a wife has a good thing. In fact, lots of men have married wives and found out that they were not what they were expecting to get. They have married an odious woman, and it's better for them to dwell in the wilderness than to even be in a big house with that ornery creature. The Bible says that. In fact, the very man that wrote the words in 1822 of whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing said that there is such a thing as an odious woman and he described her about eight different times in the book of Proverbs as something men should save themselves from. So not every man who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's every man who finds a virtuous wife finds a good thing. And in this verse, when it says children's children are the crown of old men, a a grandson in prison is not a crown. A grandson in prison is a scourge. And when it says, the glory of children are their fathers, not all fathers are the glory of children. Some fathers are scoundrels and ruin the lives of their children. So what's to be understood here is that good, godly grandchildren are the crown of old men. That's a life well lived. They're the crown of old women. Because it says, if she have brought up children, referring in those few words to being a good mother, and a good grandmother, a Lois and a Eunice. This is building a life that pleases God. And the glory of children are their fathers. This is a man who is a good grandfather. He's a good father, then he's a good grandfather. That's the order. I don't want to get that out of order. You're a father first, then a grandfather. But if you've done the job well, then you're going to have grandchildren that are a crown on your head because you've put a good brick in your life of being a good father. And they'll crown you. This is what the Lord says is important. Where does it say you're going to get crowns for getting names in the book of life? I need help. That you're going to get crowns for getting a name in the book of life. 
There are no new names in the book of life. That's an erroneous, heretical song that I grew up singing. The names that are in the book of life were written there before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. The Apostle Paul never added a single name to the book of life. The names in the book of life were written there by God and assigned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I will lose none of them. There are crowns, though, for being a good parent and a good grandparent. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers when their fathers are righteous and godly. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Does that sound like a crown? What did you do as parents? What are we doing as parents? What will you young people do as parents? That's what we're talking about in a few minutes. We're taking bricks and building our lives. And you're building it every day, Jonathan and Christina. Every day. You build the life of whether those girls are going to be a crown to you or a scourge to you. They don't need any extra help. I just saw them back there. It's a brick. Every day. Let me tell you, if you don't place that brick in the right place, that brick is going to fall on your head. It'll split your skull with headaches that your children will give you and it will break your heart. If you do it God's way, they can be a crown to you. Good children are what's in this verse. It doesn't matter one bit if your child is the starting quarterback on the high school football team or is in medical school or or is promoted to vice president at some company that is all irrelevant. Do they fear God? Do they love God? Do they believe the God of the Bible? Do they trust the God of the Bible? Do they love His Son, Jesus Christ? Do they live by the contents of the Word of God? Those are the things that need to be communicated. The world gets all puffed up about their sons, the starting quarterback. Would to God our sons were the lovers of God's Word like Elihu was, greater than all the quarterbacks. Children are not yours. They're the Lord's. Are you a father like Jehoiada, Jehonadab, and Job? My wife's come to me recently and said, are there any good fathers in the Bible? Because there sure are some bad ones. You know, there's some bad fathers. They were not attentive to their children like they should have been. And they're some of the better names in the Bible. But are there some good fathers? I said there's the three J's. There's Jehoiada, Jehonadab, and Job. Jehoiada is the one that took Joash. When Jehoiada died, who stood up in his stead and told the king that he was wrong? His sons. What did Jehonadab do? Jehonadab joined Jehu in ridding Israel of Baal worship. And long after he was dead, did he have some decent great-grandchildren? Is there a whole chapter in Jeremiah about his decent great-grandchildren? Jeremiah 35. How about Job? Did Job care about his children? That every time they had a birthday party for one of them, he would rise up early in the morning and offer sacrifice and beg God to forgive them in case during the levity of a party that they had cursed God in their hearts. There's three good fathers for you. Are you a mother like Hannah? Like Bathsheba? Like Eunice? The measure of a child is always and only how much they fear God, love Christ, Obey Scripture and serve His kingdom. 
All other measures combined and cubed don't even measure. Who gives a rip what they get in school? Any monkey can be trained to get straight A's in school. Give me the monkey and I'll prove it to you. That is ridiculous. To accomplish something on an athletic field, give me another monkey and I'll outrun your prized athlete. That is not the measure of a child. The measure of a child is how much they fear God and want to keep His commandments in their lives. What do your children say about you when they're not trying to be domestically correct? Proverbs 31, verses 28 and 29. Her husband shall praise her and her children shall praise her and bless her. A good, a good mother. This has nothing to do with the quantity of children. It's the quality. Some of the best men in the Bible chose not to have families and not to have children at all because they were going to dedicate themselves to the kingdom of heaven. It went on to describe that widow as being given to hospitality. That's a brick. Do you like entertaining other people? It's better than being entertained yourself. Do you like it? You're supposed to be given to it. Now, when the Bible says you're given to something, that means you really like it. It has a power over you, but you're to be given to hospitality. Are you willing to get down and do humble service for someone else? Are you willing to rub their feet? Maybe that's close to washing feet. Are you willing to take out their trash? Are you willing to clean them? Washing the saints' feet. A life lived well includes the humility and selflessness toward others. Are you always thinking about the fatherless and the widows and their affliction? James 1.27 says that pure religion thinks about the fatherless and the widows. Are you known for that? There are those with acts of God in their lives that deserve extra affection and extra attention, and God defines them for us in the Bible. How about diligence in every good work? Can we have a reputation of being diligent in every good work? Everything the Bible describes as being good, can we be diligent in it? That's quite a brick. That's how it ends in its list of the widow indeed in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Are you diligent? Diligent is to put forth focused effort at a high level of intensity to accomplish a goal. Are you diligent in every good work? You say, I'd wear myself out. Yes, you have a long retirement home coming. It's in heaven. The Apostle Paul said, I have finished my course. Indeed he had. Did he deserve to rest for a while in heaven? You going to run him a cold lemonade when we're up there? I want to run Paul a cold lemonade. Tell him nobody ever worked like you did. You had every reason to write what you did in 1 Corinthians 15.10. I've enjoyed reading that verse about you. And I'm glad the Holy Spirit lets you put that there, that you labored more abundantly than they all. That's diligence in every good work. Financial faithfulness. Are you being financially faithful? The Bible says this. Remember this short little verse in Proverbs 11.16? A gracious woman retaineth honor, and strong men retain riches. There's two character traits of good men. Those are two bricks. One's the brick of graciousness. Graciousness is that benevolent, gentle, cheerful, kind, agreeable, friendly way of getting along with other people. A gracious woman is always esteemed. 
She's always loved. She's always honored. Everyone thinks the best of her because she's gracious. It is so short, but it is very powerful. Proverbs 11:16. A gracious woman retaineth honor. Then a strong man retains riches. That's another brick. Financial prudence. He's diligent to earn the money. He's disciplined to save the money. He's prudent to avoid ever investing it in something where he could lose. So he has some left over. All these bricks. I can't preach the whole Bible, but the whole Bible contains it. That's why I had us read Psalm 15. In Psalm 15, did the Lord run through a string of character traits of the righteous? We want those things in our lives. And those are a set of bricks that make an edifice called your life. And every day, we're taking that brick. Every time you waste your paycheck and don't save part of it, you have taken that brick that's called financial prudence and you've thrown it far out to sea. And it's hard to get a brick back when you throw it far out to sea because once you've spent money that should have been saved, it's very hard to save extra the next time to make up for the money you threw away that should have been saved the first time. Everywhere we go in the Word of God, we find these bricks and they make a life. And they make a life that's been lived well. A life that pleases God. Graciousness is so wonderful. Are you esteemed a man or a woman of understanding by not talking most of the time? When you turn to Proverbs 17, 27 and 28, it says, A man that is of good understanding guards this thing. And he doesn't speak unless he has to. And he's esteemed a man of understanding. You know, when there's a group of men talking and the men are battling back, batting back and forth, things that they're talking about and someone doesn't say anything. You know what the, what the Lord says the general rule is that you're thinking about the man that's not saying anything? He knows more than any of us on this subject and he thinks we're all a bunch of idiots. He's esteemed a man of understanding. It's part of graciousness. The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. When you meet a contented person, they're contented with their life. House may not be that big. Car may not be that fancy. May not eat all that luxuriously. But they're content. They're content because God gave them that place in life. They're not content because they're poor. There's no reason to be content with being poor if God didn't design for you to be poor. That's just a cop-out. But if you're content because you know that God puts you in that set of circumstances... That's part of a successful life. That's a good brick called contentment. We're building this thing up around us and content. But in front of contentment comes godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what it says in 1 Timothy 4, 8? Bodily exercise profiteth little. What's the rest of that verse that you don't know? You know the first half. Bodily exercise profiteth little. Because you always want to tell me it does have some profit. But what's the rest of the verse? The real meat of the verse. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Praise the Lord. And it says, Timothy, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7. In front of 1 Timothy 4, 8. Spiritual exercises, developing your godliness, are far more important than physical exercises, keeping your body fit. Listen, we're looking forward to the day when it doesn't matter what you've done or what you're doing. Your body ain't going to be fit. Because you can't stop it. It's of such little value. 
But godliness is profitable unto all things. That's a brick. Godliness. And if we spend too much time on bodily exercise, then there isn't enough time left for the godliness brick. Because we've all got limited time. A life well lived is no friendship with the world. Their life is kind of secluded, kind of sheltered, kind of focused on the people of God and the church of God. A friend of the world is the enemy of God, James 4.4. A life well lived is no friend of the world. They love the people of God, the things of God, the word of God, the church of God, more than anything the world has to offer. They love his appearing. Did you see what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.8? Because I have finished my course, I've kept the faith, and I've fought a good fight, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness. But it's not just for me only. It's for all those that love his appearing. You know, a life well lived is someone who's looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, who thinks about those things and thinks about the next life, who thinks about heaven, who thinks about seeing the Lord and being with him. That is a brick that's added to a good life, a life well lived. I hope that you men can remember from men's meetings where I gave you quite a diagram that puts you in the center and had spokes going out like a wheel and showed you all your relationships It was kind of overwhelming, wasn't it? All the relationships that we have. A life well lived has taken care of all those spokes so that his ancestors or her ancestors, her parents, her grandparents were loved by a godly woman. Her children and grandchildren were trained by a godly woman. Her siblings were loved by her, and she was the best sister she could be. Her neighbors, her employers, his his, his employees... All the relationships of life, a life well lived, takes care of all of them. There's quite a few of them. Did you know that you men are likely a son, a sibling, a grandson, a nephew, a husband, a father, a grandfather, citizen, church member, neighbor, employee, and possibly an employer? If you lay hold of this sermon the right way, here's what you're going to do. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4. Galatians 6 and verse 4. Let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. God has not called us to compare ourselves among ourselves, but to compare ourselves by the Word of God, and let every man prove his own work. You prove it by living the life that the Bible describes you ought to. It's my job to try to help you and to help me Get ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to ask about every single one of these areas. And if I haven't told you about them, and if I haven't reminded you of them, and if I haven't tried to live some of them be in front of you, I'm going to be held accountable on two counts, mine and yours. So I'm telling you today, this is a life well lived. This is a man that can say, I have finished my course. I've been a good father. I've been a good husband. This is a woman that can say, I was a loving and devoted wife. I loved my children. I tried to... Teach them the fear of the Lord and all the other things that I've covered. This is a good life. Look at what it says. Let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is not arrogance. This is not pride. This is instead of comparing yourself with others as the first few verses are describing those in faults, And verse 3, describing you thinking yourself to be something when you're nothing. It's proving your own work by keeping God's commandments and having a life based on substance. 
not thinking you're better than others, but proving it by keeping God's commandments. Proverbs 14.14 says the same thing. Most every one of these traits I've developed much more fully in other sermons and websites that are what documents that are on the website. David was one of God's favorites. Though he failed in several of these areas and he failed miserably in several of these areas, but he lived a long life and a good life that was full of days, the Bible tells us. And he died in his deathbed with great confidence in God. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Ah, the Lord's merciful. No, no one in here has sinned against greater privilege and greater knowledge than David did. And yet God loved David and God forgave David and God blessed David. And David's life is still one that we look to. And God looked to and God compared all kings after David to David. That is so much comfort to anyone that has wasted any, lot, any years in your life. Just think on David. Think on Saul of Tarsus. King Agrippa, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. Could that man still be the most esteemed man we know in the New Testament? He was. The Lord's able. Every day, you add a brick to your life. Young people, start now. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter of your life. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. All you older ones, we thank you for giving us examples, holy examples of living lives well and building them with bricks of God's choosing. As you look back on your life with the authority of God's word, I tell you, Paul's course is not your course. A five-talent Christian is not your course if God gave you two. If you've been faithful with the two God's given you, you've done all that he expected of you. And the words that you will hear are well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's all live in light of that. Adam tried to ruin us. Jesus Christ has saved us. What can we give him in return? Our lives. May Jesus Christ be praised.